Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. In this episode's conversation, we will focus on our personal well-being by learning and discovering how the brain puts out the call and how our mind decides whether to listen. Emotions have always been a tricky realm to navigate. Until now that we know how understanding the key operating principles of the brain, when used wisely, can be harnessed and utilized as brain hacks. To take us through these brain hacks, we have invited Tiffany Gray, director at Prism Brain Mapping Australia, who has had over 25 years experience working in leadership roles. Tiffany is the only Australian accredited Prism Master Trainer. She works with leading edge organizations that are committed to enhancing the working experience of their employees and gain greater bottom line results. Emotionally intelligent brain hacks that can serve you better. A Florence Guild conversation with Tiffany Gray. Thank you. Thank you. So a couple of quick questions to help me get started. Um, So who took care of their personal hygiene this morning? So it might've included brushing your teeth or having a shower. Who didn't put up their hand? <laughs> so why did you do that? Why did you brush your teeth or have a shower? Feel good. Feel good? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? Not routine, normal thing to do. Not routine, normal thing to do. Nice thing to do for others. Nice thing to do for others. Yeah, yeah. Um, and who, who, who fed themselves today? And why did you do that? you're hungry for energy energy. yeah did anyone go for a run go to the gym no go for a walk walk to the train yeah those sorts of things so what do you do all those things who worked on a project today sent off a couple of shot off a couple of emails had a conversation maybe helped solve a problem So who intentionally got up this morning and actually asked themselves how they were? Mm -hmm. So why'd you do that? It's a habit now. It's a habit? Yeah. It's a practice. Yep. Yep. So what's the impact of not doing that? Uh, Well, it's like hygiene. You just know when you haven't brushed your teeth, don't you? Mm. Yep. And do you have a set routine for it, for when you actually ask yourself that question? Yep. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, and who actually stopped when they were either buying their train ticket or at the service station and actually looked the person in the eyes and said, how are you today? Yep, so why'd you do that? To be friendly. To be friendly, yep. Yeah. So when I actually generally ask these questions to um, leaders in organisations, Definitely always the hands go up until I get to the question around how did you actually ask yourself how, how are you today? 
and we send, tend to actually spend more time looking after physical self, some of those routine behaviours, but being able to actually ask ourselves, how am I, becomes a little bit more challenging. So today what I'd like to do is actually explore emotionally, being emotionally intelligent. So I'm not going to kind of jump into that definition of emotional intelligence because for me, based on the work that I actually do in organisations and also the, I guess the research that I've done, for me it's about how do I actually regulate my emotions, being able to understand where I am in the world, how I kind of navigate that, what does it actually mean and, and how do I regulate. And has anyone done any work in neuroscience? You have? Great. So you can come and help co-facilitate with me. Yay. Um, always love having a buddy. But, um, you know, what, what I actually explored through the study um, of neuroscience and things like that, that there's actually some processes or mechanisms in place that if we actually understand those, we can transform them into kind of brain hacks to actually help us along the way and to be able to actually navigate our worlds and the, our interactions with others a little bit better. So I brought along my spare brain. Did anyone else bring along theirs? Just in case, does anyone need to borrow mine for the rest of the day? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and look, there's lots of stuff out around neuroscience and it's really quite extraordinary, the insights that we're actually getting from it from um, you know, a brain hack perspective, but also too, some of the um, some of the insights is really important. I mean, Tex and I were talking about, as an example, I was talking about his name. I really like his name, Terry. My father was Terry, and um, you know, my grandparents were born, I think, in 1904 or something along those lines. And my grandmother, when she was 14, had two choices. She could um, go off to learn to be a school teacher or she could go home to the farm to learn how to be a wife. And so she chose the later. So for me, that's probably a good thing. So, you know, enables me to actually be here. But one of the things around that time is you didn't really question. It was a very, in some ways, a very obedient type of culture. And um, hence the link to this conversation with Terry was that, um, so my, when my father was born, he was maybe fourth of nine children and they were in a country town and they had the priests come in, good Catholics, priests come in to actually baptise him um, and they were going to call him Michael. So when the priest actually baptised him, they, he said, no, a much better name is Terence Michael because the priest was called Terence, so that's what they took. And so hence he became Terence Michael. So very obedient culture and I think today, you know, one of the challenges that um, we experience in work life um, as well as in private life is there's just so much choice. There's just so much going on. I mean, we're pretty much told that we can have it all, um, but that can also be really overwhelming. And, you know, in some ways our brain wasn't actually designed to actually have too much choice because it becomes paralysing. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. But um, just one or two things. What do you know about the brain? Help me out. Left side, right side, yep. Any distinction between left side, right side? Yep, yep, yep. What's a really important rule, and I think this, is, this was one of my greatest insights around left side, right side. What do, you, what do you think the most important part of that information is? What the most important part? Of left and right. So we do have a, more attuned to being more creative, more relationship orientated, um, more strategic, more task orientated. Do you know what the insight is around that? that they're actually two separate hemispheres. 
and they're held together by a band of fibres called the corpus callosum and people who suffered from epilepsy in the past used to have that severed um, where they, it just disallowed the two hemispheres to communicate. But more importantly about that band of fibres, because the brain, the fundamental role of the brain is around the perpetuation of the species. And in order to do that, it has to do two things. It has to protect from threats, and then it actually seeks rewards. And in fact, it has five times more error detectors than it does. So once that's all sorted, and I'm not in a threat state, then I'll actually go to seek reward. So as part of that mechanism, these built-in mechanisms around being able to perpetuate the species and fulfill that role, this band of fibres also has an inhibitory function. And what that means is I can be so intently working on a relationship and having a conversation deep in thought and emotion, and it actually puts the left hemisphere to sleep. So my logic, strategic sort of thinking about things can go completely out the window. So it might be whilst you're at your desk and you're actually putting this plan together and you've got all the process happening and then you go and actually pitch it with a group of people and you're really clear on what that's going to be, but suddenly the stimulus in the environment is actually about people and opinions and emotions and kind of that can go completely out the window and we can kind of derail ourselves. So there's lots of little mechanisms that can trip us up because the brain actually doesn't want to grow and develop. The brain actually just wants to conserve energy in order to be prepared should I be in a threatening situation. And I think as us as human beings think we're really clever and that those rules actually don't apply. But it's the fundamental rule. And I'll talk about that a bit more. So in terms of what does this all really mean from an emotion perspective? So the first part of the brain that we actually developed, and a lot of you would already know this, is the reptilian brain. So it's what we share with crocodiles and things like that, which is just really about sleep sex and eating, right? Just about survival, that's all that they actually do. Then we actually developed this limbic brain, which is where the seat of all emotion is. And I did hear a neuroscientist say that the reason why we evolved this part of the brain was to actually stop eating our children. Because as we know, an alligator will be hungry, so it'll eat its own eggs, yep. And then what we actually evolved as human beings was the cortex, which is our ability to think and to plan and to strategize and to do all those sorts of things. And as part of the cortex, just behind your forehead, is the prefrontal cortex, which we don't really evolve till we're in our mid-20s. And that's our ability to focus our attention, plan for the future, make decisions. So if anyone has got teens or has been a teen themselves in the past, you know, it might explain some of those behaviors that, um, you know, so, um, you know, so in some ways, just as a side note, if you do have teens, it is a really tricky time for them more so than probably when we were teens um, because there is so much going on and the expectation around their maturity and they just can't get there because, you know, while they might have the structure, the, the ability for it to fully function is just not quite there. So it's about being able to ask different questions if you're parenting or something along those lines. So what this fundamentally means and has been really helpful when starting to think about um, how do these functions work? In some ways, when we receive sensory information and we're bombarded with it all the time, and it's coming like, you know, milliseconds apart, and what happens, it actually comes into the back part of the brain and it travels two pathways. And this is my lovely picture up the top. And what it actually does is it's come in from the back part of the brain. It might be about the temperature of the room. It might be about the signals I'm actually getting from other people. It might be, you know, a number of different things that are actually occurring. 
the sensory information comes into the back part of the brain and it takes a really quick and dirty route, which is called below the line or the low route. And what it does, it just picks up really crude information about that, that information that's coming in and it reacts. Yeah? It doesn't really think about it, it's not really accurate, it just reacts. So in some ways this is a really helpful pathway, so if I was to be walking along the street and I've actually picked up some sensory information, it might actually stop me from tripping over or walking out into a, in front of a moving car or something along those lines. It's also really useful when we have to get out of bed and you know, get ready for the day because they're just triggers, they're just routine habitual patterns of behaviour. Because if I had to think about every movement such as getting out of bed and doing all those things, sort of things, that's probably all I'd get time to do for the day because I'd be exhausted. At that same time, that, that information is actually setting, sending up to the second pathway or the higher road or above the line. And it's a much slower process. So it's where it actually engages with the cortex. And we start to make sense. It taps into our memories and sort of says, well, what is it? What is that thing that I can actually see? And what does it really mean? And, you know, and how do I actually use that information? So we're constantly being bombarded. So we've got five times more error detectors. So it might be simple triggers of, you know, Madge's walking down the hallway and looking really angry at me in terms of the amount of time I took to actually present today. Yeah? So I'm actually picking up sensory information. It's triggering. And what it does is it actually puts me into a threat state. What happens when we get put into a threat state? What could you imagine some of the behaviours to be? Fight or flight. Yeah, absolutely. And what the most important piece of information about this is, <coughs> is that if I actually go into a fear state, it actually commandeers the rest of the brain. So this actually doesn't function. So my ability to actually think through and understand it, it's out the window. Because that fundamental role of perpetuating the species has taken over. It says you're in a threat state, there is not a chance you're actually going to be digesting food or thinking about what this all means because you need to actually survive. And it can't discern. So it can't discern when someone's actually coming down the hallway, you know, really aggressively and looking towards me because I just go into that state. So the question then becomes, you know, what does it actually mean? So everyone works below the line, not everyone works above the line. So what could you imagine might be in a workplace some of the things that you might experience that puts you into working below the line? Bad look on your boss's face. Bad look on your boss's face, yep. What else? Toxic culture. Toxic culture. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. What else? A short email Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. So when we're actually working below the line, sometimes it can be really useful because it can actually help us to survive and it can also help us to, you know, undertake some daily functions without having to really think it through. But when it actually starts to get really below the line, when I'm in a threat state, where it is about survival, it's where I actually turn inwards and try to control my environment. So my ability to actually see the other is inhibited. My ability to actually make sense of what's going on is inhibited. So I literally turn inwards. My ability to learn is actually inhibited. So not much goes on here. So I might become more aggressive. I might, might become more aggressive and reactive to the situation. Yeah. So if that's what it's like to actually work below the line, what do you think it would be like to work above the line? But it's our ability to actually make decisions. It's our ability to learn, to create, to innovate.
to focus our attention. It, it actually can physically hurt when you exercise those parts. Work, yeah. yeah, and also too, I mean, it's like exercise, your capacity is really limited. So the more you actually use it, and the more you actually stretch yourself. And part of the reason why from, so when I think about the brain, really for me, and we utilize a tool called Prism Brain Mapping, which is a neuroscience-based behavioral profiling tool. And the reason we used um, Prism, it's not the be-all and end-all, but what it does, it provides an opportunity for me to see self outside of self and to make some more informed choices around how do I actually how do I actually impact on myself and how do I potentially impact on others? So it's just a good platform to actually work from. But with that, with what you're saying is for me, it's really about the economics of energy. How much is it going to cost me to exercise particular behaviours and what's going to be my return? So if I'm learning a new behaviour or um, stretching my brain in a new way for the very first time, it is going to physically hurt. And the reason why it's actually going to physically hurt is because I'm actually starting to compete with the part of the brain that says, no, don't learn, don't learn, don't, don't learn, don't do this, don't do this. But it literally uses more oxygen. But also too, this little voice that suddenly appears that says, you don't really know how to do this. And then the deceptive brain messages kick in. And that's really important to actually understand from um, being able to regulate our emotions about being able to understand what's going on. But that's actually what we're talking about. So it is hard work. Um, and so actually working above the line. So we need to actually be really mindful and very intentional around one, um, being able to actually get above the line and two, how we actually use our time in that space. So a really good question in terms of actually regulating our, our emotions, and this works really well for me and um, the work that I actually do with leaders in organisations, is being able to use this model, but being able to actually say to myself, where am I? What, when you actually heal the real estate and they say there's three really important things when you're actually picking a property, what are those three really important things? Location, location, location. location. So it applies here too. So being able to actually notice and ask yourself that question, so I can intentionally ask myself in the morning, where am I? But throughout the day, how do I start to wire in the behaviour to notice and to ask myself, where am I? And it might be that you're actually below the line. So when you're actually asking the question, you're starting to actually straddle the line and you make a choice. But when you start to go, well, actually, I'm just doing routine tasks. I don't want to, I'm just going to continue on with it. Good, it's just working well. But other times it's about being able to say, where am I? And more often when I'm actually in a position where there's some difficulty going on. There's a lovely term that's used in South Africa um, called Ubuntu. Has anyone heard of that before? What does that mean? I can't remember the translation. I just yeah, it's about meaning that I see you and I am because of you. So we were not born as um, islands. We're actually born as a community and to be able to actually interact. So lots of stimuli actually gets delivered between people, particularly if you've got a client consultant relationship, whether you've got a leader and an employee relationship, partnerships, all those different sorts of things. So there's stimuli that's actually going on all the time that will start to actually predict and influence how, who and how you're actually going to be in the world. So really important to actually ask yourself, where am I? Because that's the opportunity to either get yourself above the line or to continue on below the line. Does that make sense? So one of the more important reasons as to um, why it's important to understand this process and why it actually works is quite often in organisational life, we'll, read it, we'll receive an email with some directions about what to do 
or we'll receive a pack with just some really pretty pictures around, you know, what the strategy is going to be. And in some ways, we're actually putting people into a threat state by doing it. Because what we're doing is, we're actually trying to engage this part of the brain. But we actually haven't taken care of what's going on down here. So when we're actually engaging with ourselves, and when we're actually engaging with our others, there's a couple of things that we've got to do. We've got to have an emotional connection. We've got to be able to have some choice. And I love to use the example of Kmart. So when I was a little girl, Mum used to take us to Kmart to buy our runners for school. And when you go to Kmart at that period of time and you wanted to buy new coffee cups for the house, you had a range. You had flowers, you had spots, you had dots, you had checks, you had plain coloured ones. You know, the, the range was just huge. And most times you'd actually go into the shop and go, oh, what's actually going to match the kitchen? Mm, not really sure. Maybe I'll just go home, have a look at the kitchen again and come back. So too much choice becomes paralysing. Now if you're going to Kmart, you've got a choice of pink or blue. And you go, I'll take the pink ones. You know, easy. Yep. So they've actually increased their ATV based on how, many, how much people can actually make easy choices. So an emotional connection, I've got to actually be able to have some choices. I've also got to have something tangible to work with, you know, which could be a tool or it could be a picture or it could be something rather than just an esoteric understanding of what it could be. The other thing that we actually need to have is a start and stop time, so a containment. So this is really important if, for example, um, you've discovered that you've got, you have a, an emotional reaction or an emotional response. So your ability to actually put some containment around it can actually enable us. So it might be that I have to go and have a really challenging conversation with a client of mine and I know that from 11 to 12 I'm going to be able to do it. So I've got a start and stop time and I can manage myself through it. It's just when there's no boundaries that sit around things and I haven't got a real um, clear understanding or an intention or um, some sort of containment to manage myself, that that's where it goes a little bit haywire because it puts me straight below the line. So if Madges and I, for example, decided to actually go out and have a really nice cup of tea and she said, let's do 30 minutes. And I said, yep, beauty. So we're out having a cup of tea and we're out for 30 minutes and I start to look at my watch and I'm like, oh God, it's been 40 it's been 50, we're having a really lovely time, but I've actually put myself into a threat state because we've actually gone over that boundary. So even being able to continue those conversations is usually not valuable. So having boundaries, being able to actually put that in place, a start-stop, is really important, both for yourself and for other people. So these are the things that we've got to start to attend to that sit below the line to help us to actually get above the line. So once we can actually do that, particularly if you're doing client work, then you can actually start to engage them around what the strategy could look like. And which is why 70% of change exercises generally fail, because I haven't actually got that connection to it. Before you go on, what was the third point? Tangible? Containment? No, that was four. So that was the start-stop. So you've got active emotional connection, choices, tangible something, and then... Oh, tangible. So it could be something tangible. So it could be actually giving someone... So I might be talking about the brain, so it's really important for me to actually bring a brain in or to have a, yeah, if you can, yeah, if you can, or you might actually have a visual of a brain if you actually can't do that. But something, because we actually pick up the visual. Our visual processing actually gets picked up quicker before anything else. And that's why I might actually see someone, going back to that example of walking down the hallway, and I pick up their facials or parts of their facials expressions and, um, and I put myself into a reaction before I'm even consciously aware of what's going on. Now, just to actually highlight this a little bit more, this happens in 0.3 of a second before I am consciously aware. 
So an example would be when I was, as I mentioned to you, my, my father's family grew up in the country and they lived in the country. We, I grew up in the city. Every time, which was usually Christmas day on a 40 degree day, we would drive there for four hours in the car, no air conditioning. Um, wouldn't happen today, would it? Um, but anyway, so, but when I used to get there, they were all truck drivers and farmers and things like that. And all I used to hear as a child was that when you live in the country and you drive on these country roads, a horse or a kangaroo runs out, or a cow, runs out and jumps in front of your car or your truck or something along those lines. Every, for some reason, that's what I heard every time I went to visit. So anyway, so eventually I actually moved from the city, I actually moved down the coast and I had to travel on a 100k road for an hour. And um, anyway, and I thought, and it was usually, you know, early mornings or late nights where it's pitch black and there's no street lights and all that sort of stuff. So I was really conscious of something was actually going to run out in front of the car and I'd swerve off the road and, you know, that would be the end of it. So I used to say to myself, and um, not that I need to go off to therapy for this, but I used to say to myself, <laughs> if, someone run, if something runs out in front of the car, drive straight through. And they were the exact words that actually wired into my brain. If something actually runs out in front of the car, drive straight through. I didn't say swerve, because what would have happened? I didn't say don't swerve. It wouldn't have actually picked up the, and so my automatic response would have probably been to swerve. So I'd been living down the coast for a period of time and then they decided halfway down the, this sort of 30k road, they decided to build a, um, a new residential um, place for people to live. And anyway, I was driving at about four o'clock in the morning. I had one of my, my oldest son in the car who was about 15 at the time. And um, anyway, the stop sign said 80 because they changed it from 100 k's to 80 and I'm thinking, oh, yeah. and it really stuck out. Go slow, go slow, go slow. And anyway, next minute, I'm looking in, as I'm driving and I see these eyes in my headlight, these really big eyes. And I sort of looked at it and I sort of went, God, you're a funny looking sheep. And what are you doing, you know, in front of the car? Anyway, this is how slow it felt because everything actually slows down when you're under stress. We all know that. So anyway, so I'm looking at it and it felt like I just looked over like this. And oh, you're not a sheep. You're a deer. And in fact, you're a herd of deers. So it had happened. And I was as cool as a cumber. cucumber. Just drove straight through. And I, you know, slowed down. We did collect one of them and it went for a little fly in the air and was fine. It got up and ran away. But the reason why I'm actually telling you this story is I actually probably picked up that stimuli that they were running down the hill because my son said to me, Mum, they were so big, they were running so fast down the hill and he froze. He could just see it all happening as he's looking out the window, but I was driving along. So in some ways I've actually probably picked up that stimuli, but I wasn't consciously aware of what was going on, but I'd actually wired in a behaviour to actually put me in motion. Does that make sense? So if you actually use some of these tricks really well, you can actually start to wire in through things below the line. But you've got to get to the place of being able to say for what purpose and how often do I actually check in around why I'm actually wiring in those behaviours. You know, whether it might be about getting up and doing a keynote, whether it's about being able to, um, to give someone really difficult feedback. You know, all the things that start to actually, you know, trigger you and start to actually put you in a threat state. And, you know, one of the things that Tex said before, which is also a really nice trick to be able to do, is he said, I actually don't ignore my emotions. And this is really key. 
So if I was starting to actually feel really anxious about being up here and actually talking, and the more I actually tried to hide it, the less I'd actually be able to breathe, the more I'd actually go below the line, and probably in a bit I'd start talking like this and I wouldn't be able to breathe and I'd be just, you know, talking and I'd be sounding, you know, really, whatever. <laughs> That's the reality of what can happen. So, so I've got myself into a state going, I'm not nervous, I'm not nervous, I'm not nervous, I'm not nervous. But actually, to be able to actually reframe, and this is the best trick of all time, is to acknowledge the emotion and to actually step into it and to be able to label it and say, I'm feeling really anxious. And then the trick is to actually be able to say, how can I actually reframe this? So I could be, oh my God, I'm standing in front of a million people, which might be three. I'm standing in front of a million people. They're all staring at me. They're all judging me. They're all doing all of these things. So I actually have these deceptive brain messages going on, just like when you're actually using that other pen to actually sign your name. And that's what I start to listen to. And it puts me further and further below the line. But being able to say, well, why am I actually doing this talk? Why am I actually up there in front of people? Why am I actually sharing? It opens up the opportunity for me to intervene in my brain at that point three of a second and to get a different outcome. So we're in motion. We don't have free will. We have free won't. So our habitual patterns of behaviour in terms of who and how we are in the world are already in motion. We are constantly being triggered based on what's been wired into our brain. At 0.3 of a second, usually when you get some sort of physical sensation, that's your trigger to go, ooh, what's going on here? And if you actually start to notice that physical sensation, because we have a physical response before we have a cognitive response, we have an emotional response before we have a cognitive response, it's our ability to actually go, ooh, where am I? What's actually going on here? And I can label it, and I said, I feel really anxious. So rather than staying in that sense of anxiety, how do I reframe it? How do I reframe the situation and my role within it? Which might be, I've actually got some information that I'm going to share with these people that's actually going to make their lives so much easier. Yeah? The third step that I actually need to do is then to actually refocus my attention. So this month is about how do I actually focus? So we want to limit the competition that's actually going on in the brain. So how do I actually refocus my attention? And that's about being able to repeat, like I did with the wiring, around something runs out in front, just drive straight through. Yeah? So refocus, so which is practicing. So there was a fellow called Heb, a neuroscientist called Heb, and his whole body of work actually get, got put down to six words, which is neurons that fire together, wire together. So the more I actually practice, the stronger I actually build these neural pathways and the more that they become much easier to do, where it doesn't hurt my brain so much when I'm actually trying something for the first time. Which is why, if you use it well, if you can connect an emotion and um, to something that you're actually wanting to pursue and to develop, um, then it's actually going to stick much harder. So that's, you know, in that reframing, that can be incredibly useful. So it might be, you know, as a potentially new dad, you know, what are some of the habitual patterns of behaviour that you might actually choose not to do anymore that, you know, might minimise, you know, being dad a little bit about. So there might be some things that you go, you know, I want to knock that off. I remember when I had my second son and I'd been transferred with work. God, he was like, he's so tiny. 
I think the, uh, they offered me the job the day I got out of hospital and I went up there maybe when he was about 12 weeks and I moved state, didn't know anybody. And um, <clears throat> so two tiny little boys under two. And uh, one of the things for me was um, I'd love to have a drink and I love to be out and about. But because I actually had no family and I was working full time and they effectively had to go to care full time. So for me, it was very easy to make the connection with, actually, I don't want to drink anymore. So I just stopped drinking. It wasn't because of any other reason other than, you know, I didn't want to get up feeling a bit slodgy on the weekends and, and lying around on the couch while they played on the floor. I didn't want that to be how I lived. Um, so for me, so I, it's been, I don't know, God, 20 odd years. They're getting very old. Um, you know, now, since I've actually had a drink and, you know, don't even think about it or anything along those lines. So, you know, there's, there's tweaks that you can make rather than just going, oh, well, we just go out and drink or we just do whatever. But whatever it may be in your life um, that you might just tweak in a way that's going to give you much more fulfillment, you know, whether it's maybe not having six donuts when you stop at the coffee shop on, you know, at the train station on the way to work. You know, maybe something along those lines. But absolutely, if I can connect it to some sort of emotion and what that may be, it'll get locked in. The tricky thing with that also can be, so where this emotion actually gets locked in, in um, is a thing called the amygdala, and probably lots of people have heard it. And that's where the error detector is. So we have two amygdalas, both in, in one in each hemisphere. And this is the only thing I'll say, well, there's two things, but the only one thing I'll actually say from a male-female perspective in terms of female brains and male brains, is that the female amygdala is generally larger. And the reason why it's actually larger is because it's um, something genetic we've had for a very long time when we were living on the Sahara, where the role, what was the role of the woman? Yep, to protect the camp. So she was constantly on the lookout, is there any wild animals coming to eat our food or the children? You know, where are the children? Are they all safe? So there was this constant just, so the amygdala actually enlarged. What was the role of the male at that time? to get food, to hunt. So a very focused, you know, I'm on attack, those types of things. So there is a difference in the size of the amygdala. So if we're putting ourselves constantly in stressful situations, such as I'm posting on LinkedIn and social media, is anyone actually liking it? Oh my God, should I have actually said that? Should I actually comment? Maybe not. Oh my God, I've got to get to the meeting. How many emails have actually got in my system? Then I've got to get back and I've got to take the 74 children that I seem to have adopted to, you know, netball, basketball, cricket, whatever it may be, cook the food. Oh, and then I better say hello to my husband. If he's still there. <laughs> you know, whatever it may be. So what we're effectively doing, by actually overloading our lives, we're actually constantly in a threat state and we're actually enlarging our amygdala. So this doesn't just apply to females now, it actually applies to males. And so people, you know, who have a very traumatic experience, such as um, when we hear about PTSD and things like that, those memories get locked in the amygdala automatically. So don't forget it's happening, the sensory information's coming into the back part of the brain, it gets locked into the amygdala and, um, and they're actually reacting. Yeah. And it's very hard once you've actually got really traumatic memories locked into the amygdala to actually be able to work with them. Yeah, because sometimes you're not consciously aware of how that occurred. Does that make sense? Did I give you the three steps? Label what's going on, reframe, refocus your attention. That's how you change your brain. But thanks for having me. I hope that was useful. And um, yeah, please stay in touch. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. 
you can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.